Brian was a friend of mine, and every time we got together, this was a long time ago, we, our, our conversation would gravitate towards Jesus in the gospel. And over time, I realized that Brian had some different views about what it meant to be in Christ, to follow Jesus. And so I asked him one time, can you explain your viewpoint to me, what you're trying to tell me? And Brian loved word pictures. I mean, everything he said like, was an illustration with like a word picture. And so this is how I remember what he said. He said to me, Chandler, it's like this. When you put your faith in Jesus, you were given a heart. You didn't have a heart before, but now you have a heart. But that heart is encased in thick ice, and it can't beat fully. Not until, and maybe some of you have heard something like this, not until people lay their hands on you and pray for specific spiritual gifts. And once you receive these spiritual gifts and you're acting in them, your heart will burst free from the ice and you will know that you are fully alive in God and you will receive all that God has for you. Perhaps you've heard that. Brian was telling me that in order for me to really experience and know and receive the fullness of God in salvation through Christ, I needed more than Jesus. I needed him plus something else. In Colossae, where the Colossians lived, something similar was going on. Paul's friend had brought the gospel to the Colossians. And Jesus, in his sufficiency to save, had been preached to them, brought to them, communicated to them, and they had received the gospel. They believed that Jesus alone could save them from their sins, and they were welcomed into the fullness of life with God. Nothing was lacking. Then some teachers came into town with something new, a new doctrine, with an addition. You might call it an and, Jesus and, fill in the blank. And though we don't know the exact content of this false teaching, there's a clue about what was going on in a little Greek word. I'm not going to get too far into it, but there's a little Greek word that's in Colossians 2, verse 18, that's nowhere else in the New Testament. Look at verse 18. It's this, this phrase. It's translated detail about visions in the ESV. This Greek word. And though it's nowhere else in the New Testament, it pops up on cultic temples all around the area where Colossae was. On these temples to false gods, we see this word, visions, details about visions. And C.E. Arnold, he's a theologian, he showed in his research that the worshipers in these temples or at these temples, they believed their false god's presence was in the very center of this temple. And to get from outside progressing inside to eventually into the presence of this God, they would have to practice all these different religious maneuvers and rituals. And once they experienced visions, or once they had a charismatic experience, then they would be welcomed deeper into the temple until finally they were in the presence of their God. They would experience their God's presence. 
Many theologians leaning on this research argue that the false teachers in Colossae were practicing a type of religious syncretism, mixing religious practices. In verse 16, we read about Old Covenant Jewish practices. It says things like drink and food and festivals, new moon and Sabbath. But then we have this interesting phrase, these visions. You need to have these visions, these cultic rituals used for worshiping false gods and angels. Regardless of exactly what was going on, exactly what they were saying, we know the false doctrine went something like this. If you really want to experience the benefits of salvation and and living your life in the presence of God, you need Jesus, yes, but you need more. You need this secret teaching. You need this aesthetic practice. You need this devotion. And then, then you can be in God's presence. There are many forms of this false gospel, even today. You need Jesus and some type of charismatic takeover for your heart to break free from the ice. That's what my friend was saying. You need faith in Jesus and a specific grade on your obedience report card to be allowed into God's presence. You need Jesus and the right liturgy to really experience the presence of God. You need Jesus and fill in the blank. That's how the Colossae heresy went. And it's alive today. And even sometimes we, by ourselves, fill in the blank. What does Paul say to this type of teaching? This Jesus plus something else teaching? Let's begin in verse 6. Colossians 2, verse 6. Into verse, we'll go through to verse 8. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Beginning in verse 6, we see that what Paul is talking about and what he's going to communicate to us, it hinges on our union with Christ. What we've been talking about, life in Jesus. He says, walk in him. This is a way of saying live your life in fellowship and communion and participation with Jesus, who you are united with. There are several references to our union with Jesus throughout this passage. And as we've been exploring The benefits of being in Christ, our passage this morning is all about the sufficiency of our union with Christ. The sufficiency of our union with Christ to save us. That's what we're looking at. The therefore in verse 6, it ties us back into the opening verses of chapter 2, where Paul said, I labor for you, I pray for you, I struggle for you, that you will not be taken away by plausible sounding arguments. That's what he says in those first couple verses. That you won't be taken away by false gospels, false teachings about Jesus and his sufficiency. I labor for you. And to avoid being taken away to a false gospel, Paul says here, live in Jesus the same way you first received Christ Jesus the Lord. Received in Paul's epistles, it means to receive the tradition of Christ, the the teaching about who Jesus is and 
what Jesus has done and what Jesus is up to now, you believe what is true of Christ. That's to receive. You, you believe it. And this makes sense because in Colossians chapter 1, we find like the richest Christology in the New Testament about who Jesus is and, and what he has done. He's the firstborn over all creation, the image of the invisible God. He's ruler, sustainer, maker, remaker, redeemer, is God in the flesh. The Christology of chapter 1, it's summed up here with Christ Jesus the Lord. This is Paul's way of saying Yahweh. Christ Jesus, God, with us. When the Colossians first heard about this Savior God who had come to redeem them from their sins, their response was to receive, to believe the truth of Christ. Paul says in the opening of chapter 1, we always praise God, we thank God because you have faith in Christ. They put their faith in Christ. They trusted in him. And now they're to carry on the same way. They're to continue the same way. They're to continue putting faith in Jesus, not in things or practices or aesthetic things or new teachings, but in Jesus. That's why Paul says you need to be rooted and built up in him, in him, and established in the faith, the faith that you have put in Christ. That is, keep coming back to Jesus. Don't get tired of his sufficiency. And when you look on Christ, when he fills your vision and has your attention and you keep receiving him, your life abounds with thanksgiving because you realize what God has done in Christ for you. When you grasp the gospel that your part to play in your redemption and being welcomed back to life with God, your part to play is receive. Your life abounds with thanksgiving for what God has done. What God has done in Jesus alone. Thus, faith is not only how you begin your Christian life. It's how you live your Christian life. Faith in Jesus. So Paul encourages these Colossians, don't become captives. Don't become captives. Brothers and sisters, you need to know with me this. False teaching about Jesus and false teaching about the gospel, it's not indifferent. It's not harmless. It's not just mistaken or confused. By the power of darkness, it has a goal to take captives. Yesterday, some Jehovah Witnesses were walking down the street. They teach a false Jesus. They are taking captives. That's what false teaching does. It takes people captive. When we believe the false gospel that we need more than just Jesus to have full life with God... We become prisoners. And what that looks like is all of a sudden your Christian life isn't filled with joy anymore. It's not filled with freedom in the spirit. It's filled with misery, misery and confusion and 
striving. That's what it looks like when you're taken captive. When you believe, you need more than Jesus. So Paul, he's warning against high-sounding arguments. He says philosophy. He's not down. I know some of you enjoy philosophy. He's not down on that in general. He's against high-sounding arguments that are founded on human tradition and elemental spirits of the world and not on Christ. So our truth needs to be founded on Christ. What, What we believe and know to be true is founded on Jesus. If you elevate man-made tradition over Jesus, you will be taken captive. If you let the practices of the world, think of it this like, like this, elemental spirits of the world, it's how the world tries to have an experience with God. In Arizona, there's this place, Sedona, there's these, they call them vortex, where you go to this spot in the mountain with a crystal jewel or something, some kind of rock, and you stand there and you feel the power of some something. Don't let those kinds of things guide your journey toward God. That's what Paul is saying. A man-made tradition would be anything not grounded on the word of God being taught as necessary for your salvation. We have a confession as Anglicans. Article 6 of our confession says this, Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man or to be thought as necessary for salvation. Don't add to the gospel. Eternal spirits, it's the Sedona thing. It's burning man, if you've ever heard of that. That's how the world tries to have an experience with God. When I lived in Wisconsin, a movement of prayer had sprung up in our city. And who doesn't like prayer? Like, Yeah, prayer is good. We need to be praying. However, the more I investigated this growing prayer movement, I found out their prayers weren't according to the word of God. They weren't seeking after Jesus or according to Christ. Really what these prayer leaders were doing were trying to gather people saying, hey, we're going to pray a lot together. People would be like, yes. And then they would teach them Eastern mystical, New Ageist practices to try to have a spiritual high. That is not according to Christ, and it's taking captives. We, so I'd say it like this, improperly elevated traditions and the use of elemental spirits, they deceive. They lie. They tell you, if you do more, you will have more God. That's the lie. But we say, hopefully, no. Give us Christ and him alone. How do we know that Jesus in himself is sufficient for us to know and have and possess all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places? To have access to God the Father. How do we know that he is sufficient alone? Good question. Look at verse 9. For in him, Son of God dwells bodily. Is that what it says? For in him pieces of the deity dwells. If it said that, we would need something else, right? We would need other things. But what does it say? In the fullness 
The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head and rule and authority. So why is Jesus and becoming united to Jesus sufficient for finding the fullness of God in your life eternally? Because in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, he's the exact imprint of God, the image of God. He is God incarnate. And this verse in chapter 2, it, has a lot, it sounds a lot like chapter 1, verse 19. And if you went back and looked there, you would read this. For in him, all the fullness of God dwells bodily, was pleased to dwell Chapter 1, verse 19, and chapter 2, verse 9 have a lot in common with Psalm 68. We're going to dig in just a little. Just stay with me because it'll make sense. Many commentators, and this comes out very clear when you look at the Greek translation of the Psalms. Okay, Many commentators have pointed out this connection, especially G.K. Beale in his recent work on Colossians. And what Psalm 68 in 16 and 17, verse 16 and 17, is teaching us is that in the Old Covenant, God's presence dwelt with his people in the temple. That's where the manifestation of his presence was. God was with his people in the temple. This is consistent Old Testament teaching. Now, follow with me. If the false teachers were promoting elemental practices used by cultic worshipers, who are trying to enter into this temple to get to the presence of their God through charismatic experiences and details about visions, then it makes sense why Paul would make this connection for the Christians to the temple and the presence of God. Does that make sense? Okay, I heard a yes, so I'm going to move on. So God was accessible in the temple of the Old Testament. And though it was his design, it was a man-made temple, a building. It was the center of worship and sacrifice and teaching and life with God. And to move from the outer to inner, certain things would have to happen. But now, that the fullness of God has come to man in the Son, Jesus Christ, the only way to be in the presence of God, to worship God, to live a priestly, sacrificial life for God, to enjoy all of his benefits and to live in his presence is through Jesus alone. Not through a building structure or a system, not through extra things you add on to your faith. It is through Jesus alone that you are brought into the fullness of God. So the inner sanctuary is found in your union with Jesus. That you live every breath in the presence of God. Someone would say, well, that sounds theoretical. I would say it sounds spiritual. It's true. It's a reality. That in Christ, you are in the inner sanctuary, in the presence of God. That's big. And so, you have been filled in him. Filled with what? Everything you could ever need. In him, you are filled with the knowledge and the fullness of God. In Colossians, earlier in the chapters, Paul says, I want you to grow fuller in the knowledge of God. He only says that because he knows they're in Jesus, and they can grow in their knowledge. 
Fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's yours in Jesus. In him you have been filled with salvation and the blessings of heaven. In him you have the power of the Spirit of God to live a life glorifying the Father. Nothing else is needed, full stop. Jesus. He alone is the head of all rule and authority. So why would we look anywhere else? We don't need a spiritual guru, a self-help, religious person helping us. We have the authority himself, Jesus. So go to him. Go to Christ. What exactly has Jesus done so sufficiently to open the door to the innermost place and welcome us into God's presence? Look at the next couple of verses with me. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And now we're going to talk about circumcision together. Circumcision was an old covenant identity marker. God told his people, be marked as my people by this procedure. Some of my people can have this. Not all of my people can have this. Only the men. But you will be marked as my own. And it was a sign to the Jewish people, the community, hey, we are to belong and we belong to God's covenant family. However, the practice was never merely to be an outward sign. It was always meant to point to an inward reality. This comes out clear when Moses, in Deuteronomy 10, Moses is talking to the people of God, and he tells them, you've got to obey God. You obey the covenants. They're getting ready to go into the land of promise. Follow God. Pursue him. And then he explains to them, what circumcision is really about is a sign pointing to a heart that has faith in God, that has faith in God. And so he says, this is what he actually says, cut away the sinful part of your heart and pursue God. But God's people could not forsake sin. That which makes us run from God's presence, not to God's presence. They could not cut it away. Their hearts were turned inward, not upward. Their hearts were stained with unrighteousness, not holiness. Their hearts were consumed with idolatry, not love for the creator. And the same is true for all of creation. So what Paul says in Romans 1, we should all know God, and we should all know he demands and is owed our obedience. But we deny that truth, we suppress that truth, and we live in open rebellion against God. And apart from grace, we all have hearts filled with sin. This is why we could not come into God's presence. This is why. It wasn't because we lack some charismatic experience or emotionally charged high. That's not why. It wasn't because we didn't know the right mantra to say or the right feast to hold. We were separated from God's presence and wandering in ministry, misery, confused about our identity and our purpose. 
without hope and destined to death because we were condemned in our sin. We could not approach God or be near God. We didn't look to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord and God. Without God's intervention in our lives, we looked at ourselves and we said, Lord, God. And we lived in rebellion. In him, though, this sinfulness is finally cut away. Circumcised. Taken away. Of the entire being forever. Whoever read the New Testament, the translation she read, got it. The whole body of our sinfulness was cut away. It's a little different than the ESV. The sinful flesh that corrupts our thoughts, desires, motives, and actions are buried when we are buried with him. This is to say something of Jesus' death and what Jesus' death accomplished, which Paul is going to elaborate more in a couple verses, so we'll wait. But with this sin cut away in his death and with him, we are raised to newness of life. We're free from the guilt of our rebellion and the power of sin so that we can live resurrected lives. Do you see that? We are raised. It's a present reality. We are raised to newness of life, to resurrected life, which will be magnified in the the final resurrection. But by the power of God, Jesus, though crucified, was raised to life. And when our faith is in him, in a way we can't fully understand or wrap our minds around, praise the Lord, we were brought with him from death to life in his resurrection. We were raised to live in this full, unfettered, unmitigated, unhindered fellowship with God right now. If you are in Christ, listen, right now in this moment, you are in fellowship with the maker. If you're united, united with Jesus through faith, not through faith in works or faith in holiness attempts or faith in fill in the blank, when you're united with Jesus by believing he is the Lord, your sinfulness is buried and you are ushered into the presence of God. And the sacrament of baptism confirms this reality and it replaces the old covenant sign It's better because all of God's people can receive it. And it's better because baptism marks us as God's people, but more in baptism by faith, we are actually united to Jesus. And our sin is buried and we are raised to newness of life. This is baptism. So you're made to live with God and God loves to dwell with you. That's what Ezekiel says. His heart is to dwell with his people. But you ran. I ran from God. All of us did. We chose that which is harmful. We chose false lords to lead us and fake authorities to guide us. But God came to this broken world in fullness, in the Son, Jesus Christ. And when Christ came, he didn't say, listen, now if you do this and this and this and this and prove that you deserve my love, then you can come into my presence. He said, no, you don't deserve my love, but I will die for you and welcome you by faith into my presence. What did his death accomplish? That's the end of the passage here. We're rounding the corner. Verse 13. 
How is it that the cross spans the infinite divide between holy God and sinful? Why is the cross the single maneuver that needed to happen for us to come into the presence of God? Why? Verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Sin isn't just a bad thing. It's not just that it throws you a bit off course. Sin is death. This truth is all over Scripture. It's the common experience of humanity. We all die because we have all sinned against God. Romans 5, 15 to 18, couldn't be more clear about this. We all have a debt to pay to God for our disobedience. But it's a debt we can't pay because everything we do is stained in sin. Our motives and our efforts driven by sinfulness. We need something to cut it away or forgive. So Jesus has brought forgiveness. He has done away with the debt. Though sin is present in our lives as we make our pilgrimage towards Jesus and his coming again, Jesus has removed the debt of sin, the penalty of sin, the payment of sin, the punishment of sin he has removed. How? In Christ, God was up to something. For you. In Christ, God nailed the record of our debt against us with its legal demands to the cross. This is an important moment for us as we think on the cross together and what happened on the cross. So dig in. Here's what happened. God took the requirements, the punishment, the penalty of our sins, and he nailed it through the hands and feet of Jesus to the cross so that the blood of Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, who lived the life we can't live and died for us, could take our condemnation in our That's what God did. Everything that kept you from living your life right now in the presence of God was nailed to the tree. And so God, he disarmed, this is verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Triumphing, this is borrowing from a Roman thing, the Caesar, when he won a victory, he would march, he would lead a a procession into Rome. And his soldiers would follow him and prisoners of war to show all of Rome Caesar won victory. Jesus is God's king who leads this triumphal procession of victory. Unquestionable victory in the king. Revelation 10, 12, it tells us that the accuser will stand before the Father and try to accuse you. There's sin in our lives. It's it's present. We struggle with it as the Lord sanctifies us. And the enemy wants to take that and take it to the Father and say, look, he's done this, she's done this. But Jesus stands there. Jesus stands there. And it tells us in Revelation 12, 10, that even though the accuser will try to accuse you, 
King Jesus' victory on the cross silences his accusations because the penalty for your sin has been nailed to the cross. This is Paul's message to the Colossians who are facing the threat of captivity to a false gospel. The Christians were being told, you need Jesus and to experience the victory of God in his fullness. Paul says, no. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the authority of God. Jesus is the fullness of God come to you. Jesus has dealt with your sin finally and forever. Jesus is God's victory. What else do you need? And everyone says, nothing. Nothing more. Faith in Jesus, his sufficiency, surrendering to who he is and what he has done for you, that fully redeems you and welcomes you fully into the presence of God. So I want to exhort you in three ways as we conclude. First, if you've never believed on Christ, I want you to know that the gospel we preach is this. You are a sinner, and Jesus is the Savior. You are a sinner, and Jesus is the Savior. You don't have to prove that you deserve his love. He doesn't ask for that. All you have to do is what Paul says, receive, believe, put your faith. Read Colossians 1 and 2. By the Spirit of God, believe what it says, and you will be saved. Welcomed into the presence of God forever. Freed of the condemnation. Now's the time. If you have not put faith in Christ, now is the time. Second, if you have put your faith in Jesus, I want you to know that nothing can separate you from God's embrace, his love of you, his delight in you, because of your union in Jesus. Sin in our lives, it will dampen our joy. It'll make us less effective in ministry. It'll bring... It'll bring all kinds of misery. I'm not making light of that. But all of the claims that try to steal you from God's presence have been silenced the moment the nails went through Jesus' hands and feet. Every sin, even the sins you struggle with now or will commit this week, brothers and sisters, they have been nailed to the cross that you bear them no more. And while this is true, it is the love of Christ in us. It's Jesus in us and our union with him. It compels us to shed off sin. It compels us to get rid of the darkness in our lives. So third, and lastly, to live this resurrected life that God offers you, life of peace, of fullness, of mission, of assured love, of loving your neighbor and your family the way that God does. To live this life, you must continue the way you began. In him. Faith in him. And I want to help you diagnose. Are you living in him right now or in him and something else? So here's a question for you. Reflect on this. Are you making a good thing a God thing? Are you making a good thing a God thing? It's good to pray. And I go back to Brian in that story. It's good that we would lay hands on one another. And yes, we want the gifts of the Spirit to be fanned into flame in our lives. It's good to have a liturgy that is biblical 
and that ushers us into worship. It's good to know the traditions of the church and walk in them as they've been passed down. It's good to obey the Father and pursue holiness. And in fact, the Spirit of God in us will cause us to do these things. But are you making these good things God things? Are you elevating them to equal footing with Jesus and his sufficiency? Do you think it's Jesus and your holiness progress tracker that gets you closer to God? Do you think it's Jesus and your whatever? Maybe it's, do you think it's Jesus and your love for your neighbor that get you close to God? Well, then you've elevated these good things to God things. And maybe you're a captive. And when you're a captive to these false ideas of the gospel, one of two things happens. Either you become self-righteous, thinking, I can do all the ands, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm more holy than them, and I'm closer to God than her, and, and you become self-righteous, which is a big danger, or you become miserably unsure of God's love because you can't do the ands. And every time you fail, you just feel like you're further from God. The truth is, in Christ, you could be no closer to God than you are right now. So here's my encouragement to you. As you received in Jesus, Jesus, so walk in him. Let your scripture time, this good thing, let it drive you to faith in Jesus. Let your prayer be according to Jesus. Let your taking of the sacrament this morning strengthen your faith in Christ. Let your love for your neighbor flow from a vision filled with Jesus. Let your assurance be found in his power to save you, not your power to overcome sin. And when Jesus is the center, I promise you, the good things will come. And when Jesus is the only thing, we won't be taken captive by false gospels. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's enter into a time of prayer together.